Just a quick, yo, this is George Dr. Funkenstein Clinton, and whenever I'm in Ann Arbor, I check out WCBN FM. They do the dog. WCBN FM and Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, Thomas Lynch is here in the studio. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks, T. Glad to be here. Friend of the show. Reoccurring. um, Whenever I'm here, I just feel like I'm in the right place at the right time, T. (laughs) It's always good to see you, Tom. It's always good. And that music is starting us off on on a show. Today, we're going to talk about poets and poems and um, celebrate the book launch of Conrad Hilberry, um, his his latest book, Until the Full Moon Has Its Say, out with Wayne State University Press. Um, Magnificent collection of poems uh, of his, I think, maybe dozen uh, full-length collections. This is unquestionably uh, his finest. Um, uh, in a 40-year career, 50-year career of uh, delivering fine poems. Yeah. Let me read you one, T. Wonderful. This is, uh, this is called Silence. Um, and it will make sense uh, in the fullness of time. <laughs> Silence by Conrad Hilberry. Let moon be a metaphor for what we leave unsaid. All winter we've been clouded in a rim of ice sealing the house at the eaves. But now, in April, the sky lights up behind the trees. Bright out tonight, we say. Sheets gleaming on the line, the white gravel curving away. A V of geese honks north, still traveling, thinking it's daylight. Looking to the east, we see the moon, appalling, beautiful, a mouth about to speak. The way uh, he slips that word appalling in after the moon is, I think, what separates uh, Hilberry's particular brand of genius from the rest of us. You know, he's he constantly comes up with the unexpected um, word choice. And um, I was so glad you invited me in here today to talk about Con Hilberry because your program, Living Writers, has been dear to... Um, many people who who you know come up thinking that all poets in particular, never mind writers in general, but poets in particular have to be dead before anybody pays them any attention. 
Um, and so it's very, very important that we uh, acknowledge the living masters among us, and Conrad Hilberry certainly fits that designation. And he's that rarest of things among poets, T. He's, there's, not, uh, there's no fiber of ego or self-interest in the man. Uh, there's not an ounce of self-promotion, which is why um, my guess is that the vast majority of your listeners will not have heard of him. And um, in his case, I'd wear that as a, a badge of honor because he has spent uh, most of his professional life eagerly encouraging the work of students at Kalamazoo College where he taught for, I don't know, since the beginning of time until... It seems like over 30 years, like well over 62 years. Yeah. to the late 90s, yeah. and kept teaching there in different capacities, it seemed like. He keeps teaching even now on Sundays. <laughs> they have a poetry group that meets of people, you know, uh, let's say uh, of uh, advancing years, um, who uh, spend their time listening to Conrad tell them how to develop their own, uh, what he calls this awkward art. Of poetry, which is a book that he and his daughter Jane exactly published, right. "The Awkward Art." Yes, of, yeah. of both their poems uh, in conversation. And the interesting thing is, it actually was a conversation around things that had happened in their family life, and both of these poets, um, you know, kept their record of it. It's what immediately attracted me to Hilberry's poetry is that. Um, his poems make the watershed events um, into art. When did you first read Con Hilberry? I guess uh, I first encountered him in the 1970s. But I encountered him in the flesh. I was At Kalamazoo College? Um, actually, he, um, he was here doing a reading. And uh, maybe this was uh, in the late 70s, maybe the early 80s even, T., um, they had arranged a reading from an anthology, which he had edited. This is the other thing. Because he's such a generous man about everyone else's work, um, he has um, edited three anthologies of Michigan poets. The Third Coast Anthology. Yeah, exactly. And um, so he has spent uh, what could have been time making his own, uh, promoting his own work, promoting the work of others. But I had this very good... Uh, luck of being invited to read a poem that he had included in the anthology with other local poets, and Conrad was in Ann Arbor on the day, and I was seated behind him so I could watch him rocking at the podium in uh, Angel Hall while he was reading this, and I thought, there's a man inhabited by the language he's giving us. And it made me uh, so grateful to be in that... uh, uh, in that uh, legion uh, who were reading on the day and hearing him on the day. I immediately went out and bought um, some of his books and began to read them. One poem always struck me because it involved um, what remained a mystery to me forever, the death in childhood of his oldest daughter, Catherine. I'm going to read a poem of his from his uh, uh, book, Sorting the Smoke, which was a new and selected uh, collection that won the Iowa Poetry Prize some years ago. This was uh, published, I think, in the 90s, and um, yeah, 1990, actually. 
And this is called For Catherine, 1952 to 1961. Your flesh is melted, I suppose, to Indiana clay. Only your bones attend that deep box. Graceful they must be even now. Dead as many years as you lived. If a child grows back down a year for a year, you are a hard birth to be taken in, a conception and nothing. Catherine, we die. My father is dead and his brother. Some of us grow down while we live. What, am I telling you about death? This is what I know. You visited the neighbor's cats in the park. You climbed down rocks to fern and twisting water. Once we camped by a soggy little lake, drove home in the rain, late singing the lights of the towns, blurred and wonderful in the wet pavement. We planted corn, do you remember? And in August felt the full ears, husked them, broke the sweet kernels with our teeth. You grew so easily, there seemed no other way. Your voice held out its hand, palms up. This motion, this poise, broken to wet bones in a box. On this day of your death, we love. The steep water of your making is still green and will be, will be, the fern, the falls, the keeping on. So, uh, no one can encounter a poem like this without being stopped in their tracks by its uh, unflinching look at the facts of the matter and its, um, uh, its denouement with resolve of keeping on, uh, a, a bravery in the face of a child's death, which I found um, uh, heroic and uh, still do. His daughter was nine uh, when the family was taking a trip in Spain by train, and they woke in the morning to found her gone from the um, cabin she was sleeping in with her sister. And so they had this awful hunt for the girl's body, which had fallen off the train in the night, and uh, they brought her home. Conrad and his wife, Marion, were living in Indiana, where they were both teaching, hence the mention of Indiana Clay, and they brought her home from Spain, and she was buried there. But I've always been struck by that third stanza that begins, Catherine, comma, we die period. I just think it's such a powerful line, um, powerful because of its spare uh, talk, um, and how difficult for a father to have written it, and yet... Um, his and still talking to her. Ah, yeah. And the conversation is ongoing. And uh, so uh, this is a kind of poetry that I think is is very, very singular, and what amazes me is that... Um, his new book, Until the Full Moon Has Its Say, seems to gather up all the power and um, clarity of, you know, 40 or 50 years of uh, wordplay. Um, and it gathers it up in such a way that um, um, I, I, just, I just think everybody who is going to be celebrating Poetry Month 
next month should celebrate with purchase of a book of poems by Conrad Hilberry, and they could do no better than his most recent collection, just published in February, um, uh, until the full moon has its day. Let me read two poems. And from you were it. you were just at his the launch at, at yeah. This was, was it a at really Kalamazoo College, K College, and, uh, quite yeah. properly. Uh, I think it's the Olmsted Room that Conrad requisitioned decades ago as the room for poets to launch their books in. I have to say, I hadn't been in that room for uh, maybe 25 years. Um, it was the first room I ever read poems in, having published a book of poems. I had a letter from Conrad Hilberry, who thought it would be sensible to have a fellow Michigander come over to K College and stand in this um uh, oak and cherry paneled room with tall windows uh, <laughs> and um, you know a uh, high ceiling with uh, august paintings here and there and a lobby for people to gather in and um, and a stipend attached to the reading which uh, but the best part of it of course was to be invited to his home on Grand Avenue for a dinner with himself and his wife Marion because it was, um, they were, um, their love was uh, sacramental. I mean, it was, you knew she was the brains behind the operation, and uh, and he knew it. A and, partnership uh, <laughs> of over 56 years. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, they were radically in love. And uh, yeah, Marion died, I think, in 2008, and many of the poems in this new collection have to do with that life-changing event for him, that watershed. And I think there is this um, this evocation of his own mortality that uh, is in this. Uh, but just like the poem I'm after reading for his daughter, this steadfast determination to just do what he does, which is to make poetry. This is a poem called April. April takes down my love wrong season for dying. Even the box elder hunching into the clouds is blooming, branching, leaving. She's leaving, half aware in the tilted bed, breath barely coming, then not. Jaws clamped around a scrap of tongue, her warm body gone cooler, cold. Hospice to wash her, Two mortuary men. What had been touch and talk, ripe fruit, red wine, a stalk in a winter field. So you can see how he puts um, everything, the seasons, the changes, everything goes in service of this larger reality that's taking place on the bed in a room in his house. Um, and uh, I just think it's um, there's a great power to it. And... Uh, Let's uh, let's take a short break, Tom, do, and yeah. then and then we'll come back and we'll hear more poems from Conrad Hilberry, um, as read by Tom Lynch today on Living Writers. Short break, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. Today, Thomas Lynch is here in the studio. Um, we've got a book before us, uh, Conrad Hilberry's latest collection, Until the Full Moon Has Its Say, uh, just out this year with Wayne State University Press. And we were talking about the celebration um, where Conrad Hilberry was at K College. You you were at K College. Who, el- who else gathered for the the all of his daughters uh, were there. Um, and Anne, who teaches Anne here at Michigan? Anne from Ann Arbor here, from U of M, and Jane in Maryland, and um, I think I might be forgetting one, but, um, well, he's an abundance wonderful, of daughters. Wonderful family, yes. <laughs> and colleagues with whom he taught for years, students who read his poems to, uh, to him. Um, Conrad was in great form in signing books. He didn't read from this collection and it occurred to me that maybe um, now deep into his 80s, he ha- may have lost a little confidence. He said to me, Tom, I've lost my short-term memory. And I said, how lucky we don't need it as poets. <laughs> because um, you'll see, I mean, uh, the long-term memory Good is answer. the well he keeps yes. going back to. And he can replicate not only the emotional register, but um, you know the linguistic uh, register of his times. So, um, and I was very honored to be asked to read one of his poems. Which poem did you read, Tom? I read one called "Loping Road," and um, I was it a bicycle poem? Was it one of his bike riding poems? I have to think that's part of the experience. I mean, he's a he's a a marathon bicyclist, Um, but I have to tell you, I I I had a reading in Lansing uh, in the middle of winter, and um, and I had had the advanced copy of this book. For about two days, and was just I was reading them day and night, and I just so when I stood to do this reading, I said, "I'd like to read poems by people who aren't reading their own poems enough these days." And so I read some poets that I'm going to uh, try to share with you in a moment. But um, and of course I included these Conrad. new poems by by Conrad, and I and the interesting thing is at the end of the reading. Which included a few, uh, enough of mine to make it worthy of uh, my driving out there and bringing the books and like that. <laughs> Everybody wanted to know if I brought any of Conrad's books to sell, and they were all former students of his. Of course, Conrad Hilberry's former students litter the globe because he's taught for so long and and memorably. Everybody who ever knew the man knew that they had met a special specimen of the species. <laughs> so um, I'll read this one and. Um, I just want to remind you that we started with a poem where the moon represents silence. I see this poem as um, a kindred to that poem on silence, and it's where the title of this book comes from. And there's this um, this great valedictory sense to really fine poets, I think. You see it in the uh, all the greats, and we have to acknowledge that we've been living with a great poet over in Kalamazoo for decade after decade after decade, and we haven't given him his due. So I really am grateful for uh, the time you're giving to Conrad's book. And I'm so I wanna, happy you're here well, and, to, and to read Conrad Hilberry's poem. We should congratulate Annie Martin and her team of uh, uh, of editors and publishers at Wayne State University Press. Conrad has published with good university presses for years, 
But Annie Martin, the acquisitions editor at Wayne State, is a former student of Conrad's, and one of her first orders of business was to bring him home. Mm-hmm. Published and, in Michigan. Yeah, a man born in Ferndale is now published just down the road on Woodward Avenue by Wayne State University Press and uh, published well. This and is a poem called Loping Road. And it's the moon across the years in some way. I don't know, except he's telling us a lot about, I mean, he's a formal master. I think there's four or five villanelles in this book that you never know until you've, you know, until you wake up in the middle of the night and say, doggone it, that was a villanelle. <laughs> and there's sonnets, and I think one sonnet. This one talks about the the issue of um, quatrains. Hmm? A quatrain never knows just when to pitch it in. Your sonnet lays out its eight by six, tells the I am crew to work on it, hauls in a metaphor or two, some rhymes, preferably not too tedious, and by three this afternoon you've earned a shot of vodka at the pub, a round of golf, supper with Lorraine, possibly the beach. But think of us who push an endless quatrain up the hill with no idea where or how to let it die. Here comes a shifty undercover line or two, subversive or shy, the way they used to be. Then silences that hang like Spanish moss from a barren limb. Words, like an urgent twist of smoke, vanish. So, quatrain, let's shut it down. Fourth line closing on beat three this time. Think of a suitable rhyme. Steep words, remember me. No, ending can't be that easy. We're here, Quatrain, still on the move. I'll kick the starter on my motorbike. Listen to it rev, ready to go. We'll follow the loping road that valleys towards the bay, holding that last rhyme off at least until the full moon has its say. Yeah, go ahead and weep <laughs> with the beauty of it. That that perfect setup for that. Uh, and, the, the bay yeah. and the mean, double meanings of that, too. Not only that, but the, the poem really does seem to end on that constructed line, steep words, remember me. <laughs> that That is the fourth line closing on B3. Yes, he, he's orchestrated. He set us up, right. right. Yeah. And, and then you must turn the page to find, <laughs> no, ending can't be that easy. So fair play to the oh. printers who made us turn the page to find it. But it's that kind of uh, formal grace inside of um, what seems to be a determination uh, here in his ninth decade to just keep doing what it is we're doing. So until the full moon has its say is until the silence comes. And until he's silent, he'll be doing this. And we are all the better for it. These are treasures. And, um, yeah. Did you get to pick that poem, Tom, or did Conrad Hilberry ask you to read that particular one? At no, the- I actually elbowed my way into this deal because uh, <laughs> they had local, plenty of local poets in Kal- Kalamazoo that, that knew Conrad, and I said, I want to read something for Conrad. I want to go over there and tell him how important he's been to me and... And so, well, your first reading—I mean, that is so interesting, Tom, to hear about your your first reading at K College yeah. in that sa- very same room yeah. of your first book of published poems, and then also that moment here in Angel Hall, where you were reading. Because was that before it then, where you r- were reading with the and from the anthology? Yeah, Michigan has 
this abundance of uh, poets in a, and I have to say a great collegiality about them. Um, uh, but um, it was it was very nice on the day to be there with him, and I hope this book secures a place, you know, in the permanent permanent uh, firmament of poets for Conrad because uh, uh, he earned he's earned. I've nominated him for. Uh, a prize, a Michigan um, Library Association prize. I hope people will will do the same because um, can people? Is that something that people could look up and vote for, or is it just do you? I just think um, I think things happen as they're supposed to happen. The best vote <laughs> is to go buy a book of poems in April and read it until you can say it by heart. Not you know? oh, wonderful! Yeah. Nash a National Poetry Month. You yeah, have to worry about it when they designate a a month for you. You know. <laughs> So, here's a poem that um, um, will make you uh, wish you'd ri- written it, T. This is by a friend of mine, Michael Donahue, and I, and I catch my breath when I think it's now 10 years since Michael died. And Michael was, um, I know this is Living Poets, but once you hear this, you'll know that at some level he's alive the and The poem's well. alive. Yeah. This is called Machines, Michael Donahue. This is an American poet. He was born in the Bronx, schooled at Fordham and the University of Chicago, where he fell in love with Maddie Paxman, uh, a woman who played traditional music, and he followed her, as we do, back to England. And there is where he made the rest of his life and his poetic reputation. Um, And that's where I met Michael, who, because he was sort of Irish-American, living in uh, London, the first... Literary adventure. First sort of parlor Sunday that I had with literary types in London was at Michael's house, where he welcomed me. And um, but then I found then we read together a lot, uh, or Michael would just pronounce his poems. You'll see why in a minute because they were so beautifully constructed that he knew them by heart by the time he was done writing them. Machines. Dearest, note how these two are alike. This harpsichord pavan by Purcell and the racer's 12-speed bike. The machinery of grace is always simple. This chrome trapezoid, one wheel connected to another of concentric gears, which Ptolemy dreamt of and Schwinn perfected, is gone. The cyclist, not the cycle, steers, and in the playing Purcell's chords are played away. So this talk, or touch if I were there, should work its effortless gadgetry of love like Dante's heaven and melt into the air. If it doesn't, of course, I've fallen. So much is chance, so much agility, desire, and feverish care. As bicyclists and harpsichordists prove who only by moving can balance, only by balancing move. Ah, uh, here, here. <laughs> Michael was, Michael was outstanding, and he was a he was a um, a traditional musician as well. Um, and uh, uh, we never knew if Mike was singing or or saying whenever he'd read poems. I remember very clearly one uh, afternoon in Cheltenham in the, in the uh, British Midlands, I think, uh, a racing town where. Uh, the reading was held in the town hall on the square, and uh, Michael and I were reading together. And Michael stood and um, gave out with these all of his poems by heart. 
his ability to conjure his poems by heart came of necessity because uh, Michael drank some, and when he was on a train going to a reading, he would um, often limber up with a few cocktails. And once he left all of his books on the train <laughs> and appeared at the reading without anything to read, so he simply brought them up from his memory of making them. And um, and because they'd all been made like music, uh, he, he got them spot on. And... Um, yeah, he was a remarkable fellow. He worked as a guide at Highgate Cemetery. and uh, Now there's a job. Yeah, he thought that I would really like to see Highgate with my son, Michael, when we were visiting there sometime in the, uh, I guess, in the late 90s. So we went to, is it uh, Lennon who's buried there or Marx? I guess it's Karl Marx who's buried there. I have a picture of Michael and his son, Rory, um, who was a toddler then on Karl Marx's spot yeah at the grave in Highgate he Michael always felt beholding to me because we were in Galway a year or two before that doing a reading at the Courage Festival and I oh. took Michael and his family out to see Yates's tower um, the one you know I the poet William Yates with old mill boards and sea green slates and smithy work from the Gort Forge, restored this tower for my wife, George. George. <laughs> and may these characters remain when all is ruined once again. Well, we were speculating on the notion that Yeats uh, married his wife to rhyme her with Gort Forge because she was famously unattractive. And um, No. Yeah. Oh. More's the pity. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, Michael always figured he owed me a tour, so I got high gate. You got one. <laughs> Karl Marx to boot. Okay, let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Today on the program, Thomas Lynch is here on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got text behind the glass. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. Um, and Tom, T, I gotta tell Tom you Lynch story. is here. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm getting concerned about the time because um, we're halfway through, and uh, you've been so generous with this, what? With this show. Don't, do, don't be silly. Uh, i got to read you two of my favorite okay. Michael Dunahee poems. Okay. And 
Michael Dunahee's poetry now is collected on this side of the ocean, I believe. D-O-N-A-G-H-Y, Michael. Write it down. He was born in 1954. He died in 2004 in September of an aneurysm. I remember the day that it happened. And life, it was like the day that Roy Orbison died. It was like, you know, there's everything before that and then everything since. He, um, Michael wrote a poem called Reprimands. He was a devoutly lapsed Catholic. And so he he grew up with uh, parents that told him all the stories from Shakespeare and the Holy Scripture. So Caliban was one of his favorite characters. His father played Caliban as a 14-year-old. And Michael could quote sections of Caliban's famous speeches, and um, depending on how much drink it There was a joyousness about Michael that was infectious. And uh, to have him, you know, in the parish or in the room was always a wonder. Um, but he, he saw, he saw um, articles of faith as, um, as articles of flesh and blood transactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a poem of his called Reprimands. And I always like this because it's based on that uh, that uh, story in the Bible where the famous doubter that I'm named after is <laughs> holding his finger over the, uh, the palms of cr- the exactly. crucifix. Right, then we're right. <laughs> and I think it's in well, uh, Michael rep- uh, uh, references it in John chapter twenty, verses twenty-four to twenty-nine. You'll you'll you may remember that in all the paintings of this. Uh, uh, the doubting Apostle Thomas never actually touches the wounds. Oh, it's uh, always hovering Always somewhere. hovering over okay. in a state of doubt, which Michael thought of, and I agree, as a, um, a state of faith. Huh? But he wrestles with that in, in this poem called Reprimands. We fell out of love as toddlers fall, glancing down, distracted at their feet, as the pianist in the concert hall betrays her hands to thought and adds an extra beat. The thought vertiginous, the reprimand. It fells the bee mid-flight. It made me stall before a holy water font in Rome, half afraid that if I dipped my hand I'd find the water's surface hard as stone, and this you'll never understand, half afraid to leave the thing alone. For I'd been taught that Jesus walked the sea and came to Peter three leagues out of port. Said Peter, bid me to come unto thee, and strode on faith dry foot until he thought and thinking sank. I'd never learned to swim, but I'd seen insects skim across a pond, and I'd seen glasses filled above the brim. Some firm conviction keeps a raindrop round. What? keeps me rigid as a mannequin. We fell out of love and nearly drowned. The very wordlessness all lovers want to feel beneath their feet like solid ground dissolved to silences no human shout could ripple like the surface of that font when other voices, tourist and devout, grew still and someone whispered by my side, Oh, ye of little faith and shallow doubt, Choose here to wet that hand or stand aside. No one was there, but I could tell that tone. I heard his ancient apostolic voice this evening when I went to lift the phone to tell you this, and 
froze. The reprimand. For once in two minds, Thomas made the choice to bless and wet with blood his faithless hand. And finally, I want to read a poem that, since Michael's death, just stings. It's called Haunts. And it has to do with, uh, well, it has to do with this. It's a poem written for his son. Um, now a man going towards 20. But then, um, well, not quite 10. Don't be afraid, old son. It's only me. Though not as I've appeared before on the battlements of your signature or margin of a book you can't throw out, or darkened shop front where your face first shocks itself into a mask of mine. But here, alive, one Christmas long ago when you were three, upstairs, asleep, and haunting me because I conjured you the way that child you were would cry out, waking in the dark. And when you spoke, in no child's voice but out of radio silence, the hall clock ticking like a radar blip, a bottle breaking faintly streets away, you said, as I say now, don't be afraid. So, and, so, and you're going to be reading uh, on Palm Sunday, April 13th. So in National Poetry Month, <laughs> you'll be reading at the Scarab Club, Tom, and you'll be reading the poems by... All Michael these guys, Donaghy. yeah. Yes? Yeah, I just think it's more fun to bring in, you know, uh, uh, this chorus of our cloud of witnesses, you know, our elders and betters. And it would, and you're reading on the day that would have been Seamus Heaney's 75th birthday. Yeah, the first birthday in 75 years, we don't have Seamus Heaney writing poems. And um, um, I think my last real conversation with Heaney was at the... The funeral uh, on New Year's Eve, two thousand twelve. Um, of Dennis, uh, the, uh, Dennis O'Driscoll, who you met, yes, T. you, yes, uh, you met here at the university. He came here, his only trip to Ann Arbor, I think. Such a lovely man. He was a lovely man, and, and Ireland's most bookish man, I'd say. <laughs> um, uh, he knew more about poetry than any ten, which is why when it came time to come up with something like a biography for Heaney, um, it was through the channel of uh, Dennis O'Driscoll's interviews with Heaney that we have a book called Stepping Stones, um, a marvelous collection of interviews between the poets, the only poet who knows enough about Heaney to ask the questions, right? and, uh, and the great man's uh, answers. And I can remember on the day that um, Dennis was buried, I was in Nace County, Kildare, with um, the president of the country, Michael D. Higgins, and the Nobel laureate, who was the principal eulogist on the day. And um, because he had had a stroke some years before, and I had had heart surgery the year before, we were the last ones in the walking procession that took Dennis to his grave about a mile and a half from the church on the morning. So we had a nice chance to talk about our friend Dennis and uh, um, and how much the world would miss uh, him as a, a poet. And uh, and it was strange to me, actually, to find myself um, 
on the day uh, Heaney died, possessed of a ticket to Shannon, um, and I, a ticket that I'd had in my hands for three weeks. And uh, that morning when I was preparing to leave for the airport, I was getting texts from Dublin uh, about the strange things that had happened early, early that morning. And um, the world, you know, changed with the death of Heaney, who you'll recall Dunahee's poems where his child says, don't be afraid. The last words of the great man were uh, Noli Tamere, texted to his wife five minutes before the surgery that never happened. Um, so, uh, again, um, this is a poem by Dennis O'Driscoll. I'll just read one of his. Nocturne, Opus 2, this is called. It's the last poem in his last book. Um, or as Heaney once said, I mean my most recent collection. <laughs> They've actually uh, planned an, a book of Dennis's collected poems, including many new ones for next year. Oh, good. Yeah. And who will, do you know, will Copper Canyon put that out? I'd or do be you surprised know? if they didn't. Yes, I mean, it's got to be yeah, Copper Canyon. This is right? a beautiful book called Dear Life, um, published um, this past fall by Copper Canyon Press. And again, uh, this book was um, published in Ireland a year beforehand, and it and Dennis knew what was happening. There's poems about his advancing illness, uh, about which he never spoke. And uh, like Conrad, he was more interested in everyone else's poetry, and um, and never could abide the conversation being about him, which is rare among poets, and uh, and I think to be uh, emulated. Nocturne, Opus 2. A sad air's best for night as you mope about the house, closing windows, checking doors, slow, cumulative strokes of the violin bow, the most ruminative notes that can be coaxed from the cello, nocturnes, unlocked by black piano keys. Strains that are trained directly on the heart when its resistance sinks like temperatures to a day's end low, music that tells of how things stand in the troubled world you now have in your hands to potter about in on your own. Music of the kind whose fearful darkness would unnerve you as a child, but whose darkness seems the very point, this late night here, a slow movement's stark conclusions ringing sadly true. Whose darkness seems... The very point? Yeah. Yeah, this is his wave goodbye. Yeah. This is Dennis's wave because, um, um, well, it's that valedictory second sense that, that great poets seem to have of when they're on their way. You know? And to have the grace to say it. To, to say be, it, yeah. To it be in it and yeah. say it. Not look at me, I'm dying, but, but, um, but words to that effect, you know. We're all dying, you know, Catherine, we die. They seem to work around this with a certain lightness of spirit, and um, hmm. I don't know. But it reminds me of his um, friend and subject, uh, Seamus Heaney, who um, who I last saw read in Atlanta last spring about this time. He read for an hour and a half. Um, 
At Tom, Emory University. Tom, let's take a short break, and then when we come back, yeah. you know, let's let's talk about she- about Seamus Heaney. Um, and what book do you have in your hand? What Human you? Chain, his Wonderful. most recent. The most recent. <laughs> okay, we'll take this short break. Today on the program, Thomas Lynch is here. Um, Tom Lynch will be reading on April 13th at the Scarab Club in Detroit. Um, so go put that on your calendar for National Poetry Month. We'll be right back. back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Thomas Lynch is here. Michigan's own Thomas Lynch, Claire's Tom Lynch. Um, Tom, thanks again for being on the program today and talking poems and poets and, um, and, and reading Conrad Hilberry's poems to start, to, to start the program today. I want to repeat that he is a living treasure he of Michigan. He is. He is. And we, uh, it's time we, we're late in our acknowledgement of that, uh, Michigan is. So it's time we and there's, we do what should be done about and it. There's books on the shelf um, until the full moon has its say. Yep. It's in bookstores. It's on all the point-and-click versions of retail uh, that we know about. Um and uh, with any luck, you might be in the same place as Conrad, and he'll sign it for you. Um, but in any event, well, the what, poems are important. And where and and all these voices that you've been reading today are are, are so important, Tom. Um, and we've got Seamus Heaney's book of last book of poems, his latest book of poems. <laughs> yeah, he corrected himself when when I heard him read this. He said, "I'd like to read some poems now from my last book of poems." But uh, he's always aware of the 15 different meanings of any word. <laughs> and um, so then he said, uh, maybe I should say my most recent collection, which it turns out to be true in both cases, his most recent collection, Human Chain, in which he sees us all bound to one another. Uh, each poet, each artist, communing with all other artists, all other poets, uh, each of us dependent and interdependent and dependable. Uh, um, and dependable. Yeah, well, that's what he, he always honored work in his poems. Yes. yes. Um, and what by work I don't mean, uh, I, I mean the heft and heave of things. Digging. And, um, yeah, digging was his first uh, sort of uh, a gauntlet. Uh, but um, the poem that I, I remember from the day he read in Atlanta at Emory, was this poem Miracle, which I've read, you know, dozens of times before. But I never I never encountered it with such power as the time he read it, and he was telling about how, you know, he the, the poem is based on that story that occurs, at, I think, in three out of the four Gospels of the paralytic, 
you know, the paralytic. <laughs> and um, when Heaney said that word, uh, I could tell that he had he had doted over this condition an awful lot. And it's true. He he pointed out uh, that there were people in the audience who had helped him. Uh, in 2006, that November, when he suffered a stroke on the third floor of an old uh, Victorian building uh, in Derry, and, uh, or in Donegal, I believe it was, after a night celebrating uh, the work of Brian Field, who was a classmate of his. And um, they brought the ambulance, of course, and they brought the stretcher to get him downstairs and on his way to the hospital. After This is after he woke up uh, paralyzed on one side. And uh, because it was the steep flight of stairs, it was, it was poets, friends of his in the adjoining rooms, uh, who got him, this big dairy farm boy, onto the cot and strapped down tight to be tilted like the paralytic who was lowered through the roof uh, to, to get to the, a place in front of Jesus for his healing. Now, in the gospel, Jesus immediately is impressed by the faith of the paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. There are begrudgers in the room, of course, scribes or Pharisees or some other hooligans who, who begin to think to themselves that this is a form of blasphemy and because Jesus is Jesus, he knows their heart and he says, uh, What's, what would you rather me do? Tell him to stand and walk? Do you know... Do you want some obvious miracle, or is the forgiveness of sins not sufficient on the day? It's a trick question, T, because they're both impossible. Forgiveness is impossible, largely. We are, most of us, paralyzed in one way or another. And we need, um, we need to have people who will get us where we need to go. And this is what Heaney is asking us to do. Ignore the question uh, that the healer puts to the begrudgers. Look rather up into the ceiling where the men had done the real work, which is getting the poor devil down on ropes in a sheet or a pallet, whatever it was. Um, miracle. Not the one who takes up his bed and walks, but the ones who have known him all along and carry him in. Their shoulders numb, the ache and stoop deep-locked in their backs, the stretcher handles slippery with sweat, and no let up until he's strapped on tight, made tiltable and raised to the tiled roof, then lowered for healing. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait, for the burn of the paid-out ropes to cool, their slight light-headedness and incredulity to pass, those ones that had known him all along. There's such, there's such deep humanity in that, such, um, such gratitude for, you know, ordinary, lifelong friends who get you where you need to go. And I think uh, um, what Heaney is saying is there is the miracle. Can you, can you read the last three lines yeah. again? Yeah. Be mindful of them as they stand and wait for the burn of the paid-out ropes to cool their slight light-headedness and incredulity to pass those ones who had known him all along. So I'm glad you asked for that because I rode in the hearse with Heaney to his grave at Balahi, a three-hour trip 
uh, north of Dublin, up into Derry, past his family home into this little village. And um, when I saw his brothers and uh, his nephews with the ropes lowering him into the grave, it seemed like the roof of heaven. It seemed like the roof that was lowering him into the salvation he did not believe in, but uh, put up with because of the language he loved and he'd been reared with and it was part of the culture. Um, but it was the shoulder work and shovel work. Of those who knew him back. Of those who had known him all along, yeah. along with the other thousand of us who had loved known him. the poems and yeah. loved the poems and uh, honored, uh, honored the man. There's just time enough for me to read uh, poems by Maxine Cuman, who I did not know. I regret that I did not know her. She's of my mother's generation. And... Um, I'll read you two of them. One is called Almost Spring, Driving Home. Maxine died in February, I believe. It's terrible to think of a voice that constructed these things gone hush. And I think that's why it's so important to get out books and read them to one another. Um, and I'm so glad you're, you're uh, here to read these at and to and <laughs> I'm so glad you are Tom <laughs> Almost Spring Driving Home Reciting Hopkins Gerard Manley Hopkins she was a great memorizer of poems <laughs> so another poet's voice also in yeah, the yeah yeah it's a human chain you know <laughs> it is a human chain <laughs> yeah dependable a devout but highly imaginative Jesuit Untermeyer says in my yellowed college omnibus of modern poets perhaps intending an oxymoron but is it? Meaning imaginative Jesuit. I love that. <laughs> but is it? Shook foil, sharp rivers start to flow. Landscape plotted and pieced, gray-blue. Snow-pocked begins to show its margins. Speeding back down the interstate into my own hills, I see them fickle, freckled, mounded fully and softened by millennia into pillows. The priest's sprung metronome tick repeating how old winter is. It asks each mile, snow fog battening the valleys. What is all this juice and all this joy? <laughs> all the italics in there, you probably got them. Fickle, freckle, these are all Hopkins words. Uh. Shook foil, landscape plotted in peace. Yeah, so after you've read all of Maxine Human, go read Gerard Manley Hopkins. I'll finish and, with this one. And when did you when did you start reading Maxine Cuman? You know, because we have the same publisher, I'd always get her books. And every once in a while I'd pull them down. But, you know, once a poet dies, you think, all those poems I didn't read. So I have to say to you that I didn't know them well until after she died, which is the pity and the scourge. But and, uh, and that's also why you want people to go out now and get Conrad Hilberry's exactly, book yeah. until the full, full moon has its say. Last year I did say. nothing but attend the funerals of writers. I, mm. I took Dutch Leonard to the crematory. I took Heaney yeah. to the cemetery. I took Dennis to the cemetery. Uh, I, I mean, w we should do better than that. And uh, But the glorious miracle of books is that we still have their voices alive and well. And... Um, and uh, and here's another one by Maxine Cuman. This is one she dedicates to another poet, Marie Howe. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's called After the Poetry Reading. What a way to end things, huh? 
I think it was. Well, whose birthday was yesterday? She was 80, that wonderful woman. Oh, uh, who said, you know, a, a woman without a man is like a fish without a bicycle. Who's that woman? Gloria Steinem <laughs> turned 80 yesterday. <laughs> I was trying to think of poets. I didn't no, know no. it was Gloria. Gloria Steinem. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, this poem reminds me a little bit about that. If Emily Dickinson lived in the 1990s and let herself have sex appeal, she'd grow her hair wild and electric, down to her buttocks, you said. She'd wear magenta tights, black ankle socks, and tiny pointed paddock boots. Intrigued, I saw how Emily'd master Microsoft, how she'd fax <laughs> the versicles that Higginson advised her not to print to Ms. APR and 13th Moon. She'd read aloud at benefits, address the Weavers Guild, the Garden Club, the Anarchist Catholics for Free Choice, Welfare Moms, the Would-Be Goods, and the Temple Sinai Sisterhood. Thinking the same thing, silent, we see... Emily, flamboyant, her words for the century to come are pithy, oxymoronic. Her fly buzzes me all the way home. <laughs> That's just marvelous, marvelous wordplay. Yeah. <laughs> what spirit there. After the poetry reading. So Maxine, uh, after her near 90 years of wordplay, leaves us book after book after book to play among, so... Um, go get some. And and so, and Tom, thank you so much for being on Living Writers today. This has been ab absolutely brilliant. And, and so everyone out there listening, Tom Lynch will be in Detroit at the Scarab Club April 13th, Sunday, April 13th, um, reading uh, your own poems too, Tom, right? As well as all these wonderful poets we'll we've heard the today. We'll see how day goes. Um, you've said that enough times. I'm believing it that I'm going you to be are there going. on April 13th. <laughs> you, yeah. you are going to, and we've got actually um, Tom's latest uh, collection, "The Sin Eater," uh, on the table. Also, "The Good Funeral: Death, Grief, and the Community of Care" uh, on the table here. Um, go and find Tom Lynch's poems, um, as well as um, the book that we've been especially talking about today, Conrad Hilberry's "Until the Full Moon." has its say out with Wayne State University Press this year. Thanks, T. Thanks ever so much. Thanks so much to you. All the thanks. Thomas Lynch, everyone. Thanks to Tex for, for uh, making us sound good out there. Thanks to everyone for listening. Um, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel.
Thornton, Thornton had a wide open three, gives it down low to Green instead. Kicked out down low for Nick. 